Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. Our reading today is from Mark 1, 1 through 13. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. The Word of the Lord. All right. Well, good morning again. So we are starting today the uh, first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, and we will be working through Mark until until we get to the end. So you're in for it. All right. Uh, last week, if you recall, we looked at the end of Mark and discovered how the resurrection was a call to wake us up to the reality of God. We saw that if the resurrection of Jesus is going to change our lives, we must remain awake to that good news, but that we are all tempted to hear that news and then go back to bed, go back to sleep, go back to the way things are. So if we want to remain awake, if we want to remain living in the new life of Jesus, we must meet him in Galilee. We must go to where the disciples were commanded to go, which was to Galilee, where we would meet Jesus. And we, we recognize that the, the book of Mark leaves us with that invitation. And where we meet that invitation most strongly is by going back to the beginning of Mark, where we come to experience Jesus in Galilee. So today we go back to the very beginning. Now why is it so important for us to spend time walking with Jesus right now? I mean, we can make the case that it's always a good thing to do, but, but why right now? Why is it important for us to spend time walking with Jesus, following him in our present context? Well, perhaps you have noticed some of the world events and the, the, the world trajectories, the national trajectories around us. We seem to be entering an age of, of growing unbelief. We seem to be entering a period where there are many competing gospels, gospels of materialism, 
gospels of sexual identity, gospels of individualism that have uh, leavened our culture and made uh, cases that have drawn many people to them. We live in a, a world that is showing growing hostility uh, not just to Jesus and his message, but to Jesus' people, to Jesus' ethic. And so we are, we are looking, our face is, is pointed towards a future that looks difficult, that looks harsh. And many of us, I think, spend our time wondering, what is ahead? Can we, can we hold on uh, from falling off a cliff? Well, as we are in that situation, as we contemplate those things, I think we are actually in a very similar situation to the audience that Mark was writing to in the very first century. You see, Mark was writing to a group of new believers, young believers in the Roman Empire, an empire that esteemed the emperor as the son of God, as the good news for all people. And so the, the power of the emperor and the power of the state was to submit to Caesar as Lord in all aspects of your life. You see, Rome was celebrating what's called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Everybody was under Rome's control and it was Rome's control over everybody that made for this condition that appeared to be peace. But that peace was always being secured through cruelty, like crucifixions and conquests, and as we will talk about in a little bit, the arena. And so we have this young population of believers, and they are experiencing not only a hostile environment, but they are experiencing growing persecution. Likely, Mark has written this gospel around 60 to 65 A.D. And those were the years of Nero. Mark would have probably seen his best friend, the Apostle Peter, crucified at this time. We know that Nero had begun to take up Christians. Anyone who confessed Christ rounded them up and did all kinds of barbarous things to them. If you were a Christian, you were in great danger. He would burn them alive to be torches for his gardens. He would put them in the arena to be devoured by wild animals. And so to be a Christian was a very dangerous, a very scary thing. And it is in this context that Mark writes his gospel. Mark wants to re-anchor these people these people that are in danger for their lives, into the good news of Jesus Christ. That is why he wrote his gospel. Mark's gospel seeks to establish for us that Jesus is the Lord, the Son of God, and Savior. He recognizes that it is that truth and our ability to be anchored in that truth that, will, that alone will give us what we need to stand strong against temptations and to stand in the face of severe persecutions. The image that we have picked for this series is familiar. It's called the Jesus fish. But the reason that I, I wanted to uh, attach the Gospel of Mark to this very familiar image is because they have pretty much the same origin. This 
image of the Jesus fish goes back to the very first century. It's one of the earliest symbols of Christian belief that we know of. Why was the Jesus fish so popular? Uh, It comes down to this. The the word fish in Greek is ichthys, which if you take those initials and you give them individual words, it's a way of saying Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. So each letter in the name fish, ichthys, stands for a key part of the early Christian confession, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the Savior. Now what is important for us to recognize is that this symbol, this confession, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior, was what that generation that Mark was writing to fixed onto. They would scratch the image of a fish on different walls in different meeting places that say this is where the people of Christ are going to meet. It was a way for them to communicate that they believed in Jesus Christ amidst the persecution. And because they had that confession, and that confession is what Mark's gospel is all about establishing in our hearts, the church survived that persecution. The church overcame that hostility. And the gospel broke out and reached new hearts and new nations. And so that is why I believe this is a very apt time for us to spend in the gospel of Mark. That we too would re-anchor ourselves as we face growing persecution, growing hostility, difficulty in, in carrying the name of Christ into the fact that we do confess Jesus the Lord, the Son of God, and the Savior of this world. I believe in that is everything that we need to withstand the unbelief of the world and even to overcome it. So today we start our journey through Mark as we discover this very basic fact. Jesus is the way prepared by God for our salvation. Grasping and holding fast to this reality will be essential to our ability to withstand those temptations and challenges that we face in an unbelieving world. Let us now look at the text in detail. Let's look again at verses 1 through 8, and I'll read those again. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So as we look in this text, we are going to see that Jesus is the way prepared for God, prepared by God for our salvation. And as we look at the verses that we just read, we will see that he is the way because Jesus came to fulfill God's plan. Jesus came to fulfill God's plan. Sometimes I think we, we lose sight of the entirety of the scriptural story. We 
focus on the New Testament and we focus on all of the things that the Apostle Paul told us and all of the things that are written to us in the Gospel. But the first thing we have to grasp as we confess Jesus Christ, the Son of God and our Savior, is that He is the fulfillment of a plan that is millennia in the making. Jesus fulfills the Scriptures, the Old Testament All of those pages of of events and prophecies, they are about and leading to the message and the coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, the coming of Jesus Christ is emphasized by the very first words that Mark uses for his gospel. He says it is the beginning. What other book of the Bible starts with the words the beginning? Genesis. The beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. Mark believes that the message of the coming of Jesus Christ is right up there with the beginning of creation. Because Jesus Christ is the beginning of redemption. He is the beginning of the new creation. And so Mark wants us to recognize that just as the beginning of the Bible is a major event, The coming of Jesus Christ is equal, if not greater. And so, Jesus is fulfilling the the scriptures. He is God's plan in history. One other thing that the word beginning helps us remember is, when we talk about Jesus, we are talking about history. We are talking about real space-time events. When we talk about our gospel, we are not talking about something that you believe because it's wise or because it seems to to work itself out in life. We are talking first and foremost about a story that happened in history, a story that we must grapple with. What does it mean? How does it apply? It isn't a question of whether we can deny it. It is a question of whether we are going to make it uh, Lord over our lives. So when we see further in this, in this very first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to recognize that the word Christ is a title. It is uh, so easy for us to get used to Jesus Christ as the name of our Savior. But in the very beginning, in the very first centuries of the church, Christ was a title. It was Messiah. It meant Lord. It meant anointed one. And so it is an amazing accident of history that Jesus is so conclusively the Christ that when we come to know who Jesus is, we simply call him Jesus Christ. But if we roll back, if we go back to this first century of the church, we need to recognize that when Mark writes Jesus Christ, he is telling us that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the anointed one. And the anointed one connects us again to the Old Testament story, which has been through the ages a promise that there will be one who comes who will crush the head of the serpent, who will sit on the throne of David, who will reign in righteousness. An exceptional uh, elaboration of The hope of the anointed one is the second psalm, which I will read a few verses from. Psalm chapter 2 tells us this. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, 
or Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. As of me, and I will ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So you see, hundreds of years ago in this psalm is written the hope of the coming anointed one who would rule over all nations, who would have an eternal reign with his father, who would be called the son of God. And so when we are told by by Mark in the very first verse that the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, we are being told that this one who we call Jesus is the fulfillment of all these hopes of the anointed one. But then we are told, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, we are told that uh, that Christ is also the fulfillment of all of these different prophecies. Now when, when Mark says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, he puts the words written in a particularly fascinating tense of Greek, which I know that, as I just said that, probably disinterested most of you. But it is interesting to note at times how they render these different words in the Greek. And so when when Mark says it is written, he uses the tense that is called the perfect tense. And what's important about that is it refers to something that has already happened and it has ongoing significance. It has ongoing relevance. So what, what Mark is telling us is that the words of God that have been written 800 years ago by the prophet Isaiah. They have been written, but they remain perpetually relevant to us today. And so when we think about the word of God, we need to recognize that everything that has been written in the word of God is not just something written in history, but is something that continues to speak to us today, to have relevance to us today, to have authority over us today. But what is significant for us in this particular moment is that what Isaiah wrote 800 years before Jesus is being fulfilled in the fact that Jesus has come to be the person who prepares and provides the way of salvation. This is a magnificent truth. I think it is as magnificent in its own way as the truth of the resurrection. That Jesus is the one who fits the image cast by the Old Testament, that he fits the prophecies that were given hundreds of years ago in the Old Testament, that he fulfills the hopes, that he answers the promises that have been laid out over centuries by various authors in various contexts in various situations in the Old Testament. And Mark is telling us something astounding. Jesus is the one that was written about. He is the one who has come in accordance with the scriptures. If you read the Old Testament, and this was the argument that Jesus brought in the Gospel of John to all of the the naysayers, if you really read the Old Testament, you would see my face and say, that's the one that the scriptures write about. 
So not only is Jesus the fulfillment of the scriptures when we talk about him fulfilling God's plan, we recognize that Jesus comes to bring a better exodus. In Mark's quotation of Isaiah, he actually includes a couple different verses from the, from the Old Testament. He, he uses Isaiah 40 verse 3, but he also uh, includes Malachi 3 1 and Exodus 23 20. And we can look at all of those verses, but it'll be easier for me simply to summarize. Mark has brought those three verses together because they all refer to the same event, the same hope. You see, in, in the Old Testament, the great event of salvation, the great thing that all Jews looked back to to know the truth of their God was Moses delivering them out of the bondage and the slavery of Egypt. That was, that was their message of salvation. We have been redeemed. We have been saved. We have been taken out of the house of slavery from Egypt, and we have been given the land of Israel. Well, as Israel's history continues and as things continue to deteriorate because of their unfaithfulness, they are eventually taken into exile and into Babylon. And that is when Isaiah reminds them that God has a new exodus plan for them. He is going to uh, prepare a way in the wilderness. He is going to bring his people out of exile and bring his people home. And so all of these verses describe God's work of an exodus. And here, Mark recognizes they apply to Jesus. Jesus is the one who is going to provide the exodus that is the the deep hope of all people, the deep hope of Israel. Because the exodus that God's people have needed was not just simply from the bondage of a particular nation or from the exile of a particular nation, but they needed rescue and deliverance and freedom from the great enemy, which is death and sin, which we meet in the Garden of Eden. And so Jesus is being announced as the fulfillment of this scripture. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Mark is saying that Jesus is the Lord who has come to lead his people to freedom, to a freedom that is far greater than the freedom they experienced in Egypt, to a freedom from sin and death. So we've seen that Jesus fulfills the scriptures, that Jesus brings a better exodus, but also we need to recognize in these first couple of verses that Jesus has come to supersede the prophets. We meet John the Baptist, and we, we perhaps, because of the Gospels, fail to recognize how significant John the Baptist's ministry was. But if you look at your Old Testament, it ends with the book of Malachi, chapter 4. And between Malachi, chapter 4, and the beginning of our New Testament, 400 years have gone by. 400 years have gone by without a single person in the office of the prophet, not a single person speaking the words of God, to the people of Israel, to the people of God. They have been living in a long, prolonged, centuries-long silence from God. The question that is on their minds is, is God still speaking? Does God still have something for us? Perhaps God has given up on us. The book of Malachi indicates he's not all that happy with how they're doing. 
So the question that generation after generation have wondered is, does God have anything left for us? Or have we finally exhausted him? Are we on our own? And it's in that context that John the Baptist begins to speak. And what he speaks is that that well-known voice of God. Suddenly, the voice of God is in the land of Judah again. And you can imagine the excitement and the reaction of the people of Israel. We are told that all the people of Judea and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him to hear what he was saying. Because they were hearing once again the words of God. God was speaking. God was acting. God was about to do something for these people again. We also need to recognize that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. That's significant. How how do we know he came in the spirit of Elijah? It's a a subtle clue that Mark gives us. But if you look at verse 6, we are told that John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Now, locusts and wild honey are, of course, um, delicious, and uh, the, the, the diet of many different prophets of the Old Testament. I'm sure down here you could make them delicious. I, I uh, have been amazed at some of the things that you eat. Um, but they taste good, so I'm also amazed, uh, you know, with the, the crawfish and, and all of that. Um, you're, you're all prophets in disguise. Here's the point. The Bible is very limited in the details it provides. So when it provides details for us, it's doing that for a reason. And so John, or, or I should say Mark, is reminding us of what John wore because his garments, his attire, matches an attire that we would know from the scriptures in the Old Testament. If you go back to 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, you will discover that Elijah was dressed in camel's hair, and wore a leather belt. And so the reason that John the Baptist walks around in the clothing of Elijah is that is part of his witness and testimony. He has come in the spirit of Elijah. He has come in the mantle of Elijah. And what is significant about that for us is that in Malachi chapter 4, we are told, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So all the people who are paying attention, hearing the word of God spoken afresh for the first time in 400 years, and seeing that word of God coming from a person who was dressed like Elijah, would recognize that the prophecy of Malachi 4 verse 5 has come to fulfillment. And if you look at that that verse again, it's before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That's kind of a get your act together verse. When Elijah shows up, get your act together because the great and awesome day of the Lord is coming. So that is what we see in John the Baptist. We see a ministry of the word of God back to life. And we see him coming in the spirit of Elijah, which fulfills the prophecy of the Elijah coming before the great day of the Lord. But all of that is put in this context when John the Baptist says this in verse 7. After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
You see, John the Baptist recognizes, regardless of how great the moment is that he represents in the, in the word of God coming back to the people of God, he is a footnote to the greater working of God, which is the one that I am announcing. The one who comes after me will be so far greater than me that you won't hardly even recognize or remember John the Baptist. The one that comes after me is mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see, this is, this is the point of John the Baptist's ministry, to say all that the prophets have told you and all that you have revered the prophets for and all that you have followed the prophets in hope and anticipation, they are for this man who is coming. They are pointing to Jesus. Jesus supersedes all of the prophets. The voice and the ministry and the work of Jesus is what all of this leads to. Now, what a powerful testimony is this, that Jesus came to fulfill God's plan. He fulfills the scriptures. He brings a better exodus, and he supersedes the prophets. What a powerful testimony we have in these first eight verses. What can we take from this but to pay attention to Jesus, to give him your ear, to really focus upon this person? This is God's long-promised Savior. Here's what the author of Hebrews tells us to do in this situation. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Well, the point of this is that if we have followed the message of the scriptures, it is undeniably pointed to Christ, undeniably pointed to Jesus. And if we are going to heed the message, we must listen and pay attention to this long-promised Savior. Jesus came to fulfill God's plan. Now, second, Jesus came to make his people whole. Let's look at verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So Jesus has made his appearance coming as, after John the Baptist is baptizing, and he comes to be baptized by John. Now this is a kind of a, a confusing thing if you're reading carefully. John is preaching a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus, who we know is sinless and has no sin to repent of, comes to be baptized by John the Baptist. That's an interesting tension brought into the narrative. And Mark does this often, and he seems to delight in it because he never leaves you with much clue about what, what, why he would do that. But we do need to ask the question, why is Jesus baptized in a baptism of repentance? And I think that uh, there are a couple answers that make sense of Jesus' actions here. First of all, we have just described John the Baptist being the first prophet in 400 years to be speaking the word of God. And what do all the faithful in Israel do when the word of God is being spoken? They go, they respond, they obey. 
And so Jesus, who is the righteous one, responds to the word of God. He goes to where the word of God is preached, and he responds in obedience to the word of God. And that is why he takes upon himself the baptism. That's at least one reason. But second, and this is more deeper or deeper and more theological, but I think it is clear. Jesus comes to take on this baptism to identify himself with faithful Israel. And even more importantly, to stand in the place of faithful Israel as the one who will take on their sins. Yes, it is a baptism for sinners, but Jesus came to take the place of sinners so that he could wash them clean. And so when we understand what baptism is, Jesus says this to one of his disciples later in the, in the Gospel of Mark. He says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized. You see, Jesus recognizes in baptism, baptism is a message of calling God to have mercy on us. But the waters of baptism represent God's judgment. And so when Jesus comes to take a baptism, he is coming to stand in the place of sinners, preparing himself to take the judgment that would befall them. So with that, we, we, we recognize why Jesus uh, came to take a baptism of repentance. He came to stand in our place, to be identified with faithful Israel, and to fulfill the hope of Israel. But as Jesus comes up out of the waters, we're told this event, he says that the heavens are torn open before his eyes. What an amazing event. What a significant event. The heavens have been torn open as Jesus is baptized. This points back to to the hope of Isaiah in chapter 64, where he said, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. You see, not only has John the Baptist started to speak the words of God, but even more significantly and more profoundly and more beautifully, God has sent his son. The heavens have been ripped open, and God has brought his own son to be in our midst to walk amongst us, to know us, and for us to know him. Jesus is the one who has opened the way of heaven. That's the significance of the tearing of the heavens at his baptism. This is the way, this is the bridge, this is the connection between heaven and earth, and there is no other. The word used for tearing open the heavens here is the exact same word that we looked at last week in verse 1539 where we are told that the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. You see, Jesus has come to be the way. He has torn away the separation between mankind and God. He in himself has removed the sin and impurity that keeps man and God separated by the veil of heaven and by the veil of the temple. Now, as he comes up, we see that the Holy Spirit descends on him, and he is approved by the Father. In this baptism, we we come to the unmistakable conclusion that Jesus is revealed as the true Son, the Anointed One. Jesus represents the wholeness of life. The wholeness of life. He has the Spirit upon him, the Spirit's favor upon him. 
He has God in heaven looking down on him and speaking from the heavens, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. In Jesus is the only person where the wholeness of life, the beauty of life, the fullness of life has been seen outside of the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve, before they had eaten the forbidden fruit, we are told that, that God walked in the garden, that God was in their midst, that God fellowshiped with them without any break. They experienced the wholeness of life. They experienced the blessedness of the garden, and they experienced the fullness of communion with God. Nowhere has that been seen except right here at the baptism where God's spirit fully rests upon him and God's favor fully falls upon him. When Jesus comes up out of the baptism and looks at the torn heavens which have torn themselves so that Jesus can see his father, we are recognizing that Jesus lives the beatific vision. One of the Beatitudes tells us, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. You see, Jesus was the only man who was pure in heart. So all the days of his life, he experienced seeing the face of his father in delight upon him and everything he did. He saw his father's love and smile all the time. And that's the wholeness of life. That is the wholeness of life that was in Jesus. God's spirit upon him and God's smile upon him. When God speaks down from the heavens with you, I am well pleased. That is in the timeless tense. That is, he is always pleased. He has been, he is, and he always will be pleased. His condition of satisfaction and joy and delight in Jesus, his son, is permanent. He is always smiling on the sun. He is deeply, truly loved and thoroughly delighted and pleased in him. That's what this means when we hear this from the heavens. And yet, we cannot lose sight of the fact that the one who has been called well-pleased, who has the beatific vision, who has God's smile upon him, is also the one who before the story is over will cry, Eloi, Eloi, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you see that the one that had the beatific vision lost sight of the smile of God as he bore the wrath of our sins? We need to recognize the the personal importance of God's well done. How much do you need to hear God's well done? There is nothing more important in your life than knowing when you stand before God, when you meet God, and the resurrection assures us that we will meet God, that you hear the words, well done. Because if we do not hear the words, well done, we will hear, I never knew you. Depart from me. Psychologically, every single one of us needs to know we're doing okay. We need to know that the Father thinks we're okay. 
We all crave our parents' compliments because they soothe us and they affirm us. How much more do we need to hear from God in heaven, you've done well. I think our hearts ache for that. Even more salvifically, we need to know we have been well done because anything less than well done is judgment, is condemnation. We know Romans 3.23 by heart. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is well done, good and faithful servant. But we have all fallen short of the glory of God because we have all sinned. The baptism of Jesus reminds us that Jesus came to make his people whole. You see, the heart of the gospel is right here. Jesus takes the waters of our judgment and gives us the delighted face of his Father. When Christ takes our judgment, he removes all of our condemnation and he covers us entirely in his beauty and his righteousness and his sonship so that in Christ and in Christ alone, we are all offered the wholeness of Jesus, which is hearing the words of the Father. You are my beloved child. In you I am well pleased. I love these words from C.S. Lewis in his essay, The Weight of Glory. It is written that we shall stand before him. We shall appear. We shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. So it is. In the way prepared in Jesus You can be made whole and hear the words of a holy father. Well done. Third, Jesus came to rid the world of evil. And here we look at those last couple verses, 12 and 13. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was in the wild with wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Notice The Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. The Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to have this encounter with Satan. Jesus came to deal with Satan, to deal with evil. The story is reversed. In the garden, the serpent snuck in and tempted Adam and Eve. But in the story of the coming one who has prepared the way for our salvation, Christ has been driven straight to Satan to be tempted, to be tested, to do battle. This shows us the purpose of Jesus' mission. He has come to battle and overthrow sin and Satan. We know in the garden that God said that the the, uh, offspring of the serpent would uh, crush at the heel of 
of the uh, offspring of the woman, but the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And here we are seeing this is integral to Jesus' mission to root out and destroy the, the, the presence of Satan and the presence of evil. In resisting Satan in the wilderness amongst the wild beasts, Jesus is reversing the curse of the fall. Here's what's beautiful for us as we come to Jesus. Satan has no claim on Christ. That's what we see here. He was unable to tempt or overthrow Christ. Satan has no claim on Christ, and thus in him he has no claim on you. The righteousness of Christ doesn't merely give us what we need to stand before God. It also gives us what we need to resist Satan's temptations. Satan wants to tempt you with pornography. Satan wants to tempt you with alcoholism. Satan wants to tempt you with hating your marriage. Satan wants to tempt you with cheating in school. Satan wants to tempt you with all sorts of things. In Christ, you can stand and say, I choose the righteousness of Christ. Christ, you had no claim on Christ, and you will have no claim on me. Christ's righteousness clothes me. Christ's armor protects me. And as you, as you plunge deeper into the truths of Christ's gospel to save you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness, the arrows of Satan are extinguished. So Jesus came to fulfill God's plan. He came to make his people whole, and he came to rid the world of evil. When Mark wrote this to the believers in the first century, they knew that to believe this gospel could cost them their lives. So why did they continue to believe in it? Why did they continue to put their faith in it? Because they knew that this was the good news that was worthy of giving their lives to. So my question as we finish is this. Are you living as if the gospel is worthy of giving your life to? This is what is required to face the future of a world that will continue to mock you for your faith and tempt you to desert it. The good news is that, Christ, the good news is that in Christ you have God's love, God's approval, God's delight, God's joy, God's victory, God's everlasting life. In Christ you have all you need. As Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Is Jesus all that you need? This is what Mark has come to ask us. We will not survive this world unless we can respond with yes. Have you given your yes to Jesus? Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.